First of all, I would say there's no so-called labor camps, as you described. There's uh, uh, what we call vocational education and training centers. They are there for the prevention of a terrorist. The man speaking is Liu Xiaoming, former Chinese ambassador to the UK during a press conference held in November 2019 and broadcasted by BBC Panorama. Different from what Mr Xiaoming states, the Aspie report and substantial evidence provided by researchers such as Adrian Zenz reveal the fragile position of the Uyghurs. In addition to the labour transfer programmes, which started in the early 2000s and became progressively more coercive, since 2018 it is possible to identify a distinctively coercive scheme which involves internment and re-education camps and what the Chinese government calls vocational training. These growing schemes, of course, have a crucial importance in relation to the wider national government program, known as Xinjiang Aid, which aims to combat extremism and assimilate minorities into Chinese culture. You are listening to the second episode of Made in Slavery. in the last episode, Aspie's Uyghurs for Sale report documents a terrifying new phase of the Uyghur repression, which not only involves forced labour, abuse and high surveillance, but also the fact that international tech and clothing brands are complicit in this exploitation. Our methodology was mainly based on three case studies, which helped us create the framework for this research. The first and most striking one was with Nike, which we discovered was supplied by a Chinese factory, um, which was located in northeast China. And through documents, journalists went to the site and direct testimonies, uh, our team found out that this shoe factory was equipped with watchtowers, fences, barbed wire and police stations. During our research, we found out that Uyghurs unlike Han workers, did not have freedom of movement inside this factory. So the workers were forced to stay in the factories and could not go home to their families in Xinjiang. In other cases, such as that of Adidas and Fila, we found that factories that produce material for these companies transfer Uyghur workers directly from Xinjiang detention camps. Our team found documents detailing the transfer and explaining that workers go directly from detention camps to the factories and that their conditions practically do not change. In the third case, we also found examples of political indoctrination. A common theme that binds the stories of direct witnesses is daily indoctrination that aims to make them loyal to the Chinese Communist Party and have them abandon their religious faith and culture. 
some of the indoctrination techniques we found in both detention camps and factories include the teaching of Mandarin, as well as the repetition of slogans and chants in support of President Xi Jinping and his party. It's not easy to find direct testimonies from those who managed to escape from the camps of Xinjiang. In fact, the few people who managed to escape become prisoners of their own trauma, shame, and fear of reporting what they have seen and experienced. After attempting to contact former detainees, we exchanged a few words with Gulbahar Jalilova, a 56-year-old Kazakh woman of Uyghur descent, a trader and a mother of four boys. Gulbahar was detained in a camp of Yurumchi, the capital of Xinjiang, for one year, three months and ten days, between 2017 and 2018. She shared her small cell of 20 square metres, about 200 square feet, with about 40 inmates who were between 14 and 80 years old. Gulbahar has been subjected to torture, brainwashing, sexual violence, forced sterilisation and indoctrination. Her story shows us that women are the first victims of this relentless repression. Abusing, humiliating and raping them means depriving them and their entire people of their dignity. Her testimony, although very concise and interrupted by emotionally intense moments, transformed the evidence gathered into a horrific yet clear image of what is happening in Xinjiang. What was Gulbahar's fault in all of this, you may ask? Why was she subjected to such horrible tortures? Her only crime was to be born a Uyghur. For this reason, the Chinese government accused her of terrorism and deported her to camps in Xinjiang. During her testimony, Gulbahar shared that when they came to pick her and others up for questioning, Chinese authorities put a black cap over their heads and dragged them. They were immobilized with a metal torture device called the tiger chair, which is widespread in China, and put five kilos, over 10 pounds worth, of chains around their feet. Gulbahar remembers being interrogated in those conditions for 24 hours. Then she lost consciousness. In another testimony, she reports that every day after 7pm, detainees were forced to sing songs. At the time, they did not realise those were brainwashing techniques and, when they had the opportunities to talk to one another, they found out that none of the detainees knew why they were arrested. After some time, Gulbahar reports that detainees were aware that they had been brainwashed. Camp authorities would give them medicine they did not know and were not allowed to ask about. They gave them two pills every week and would draw blood once a month. After a while, Gulbahar started thinking she was born in that camp. Her brain was empty and all she could feel was hunger. She also reports that, at that point, all the women in the camp stopped menstruating and later heard that they would be taken to a forced labour camp. On August 18th, 2018, she reports, people were taken away for what the authorities claimed was just a check. After four days, everyone except the sick and the elderly came back dressed in jackets featuring identification numbers. Afterwards, authorities said that they would all be transferred to factories and industrial plants within the next three months. Gulbahar is one of the few people who managed to escape from those camps. She was freed by Chinese authorities thanks to constant political pressure from her family in Kazakhstan. 
She now lives in France, where she received political asylum. However, she never recovered from the trauma of imprisonment. She says that before being released, her captors treated her well for a few days and even did her makeup and hair. The same agents who interrogated her were now threatening her to not say a word about what she saw, heard and experienced. Before releasing her, they told her that China is the most powerful country in the world and the Chinese government has very long arms. They ended with, we know how to get you and we will kill you. She reports that the women in the camp made a pact during those horrible days. The first woman who managed to get out of that hell alive would tell the world about the atrocities they had to endure. Gulbahar's testimony is representative of the experience of many women she met during her 15 months in captivity. It is extremely difficult for Uyghurs to escape these re-education programs, as the Chinese government calls them, because those are part of a policy of repression that includes detention and political indoctrination, both inside and outside Xinjiang. Even those who have been transferred to factories without going to prison first are at risk of arbitrary detention if they refuse their government-sponsored work assignments. What makes this program even more similar to established slavery schemes is that local governments and private agents are paid a fee by the Xinjiang provincial government for each Uyghur they assign work to do. In our wider project called the Xinjiang Data Project, many other colleagues at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, and myself we collected data on all of the detention camps that we could find in Xinjiang, especially my colleague Nathan Roser, who is a satellite imagery expert, found hundreds of camps, which we were then able to identify and classify thanks to their similar structure. We found many, many images where we could clearly see watchtowers and barbed wire uh, inside the camps, as well as smaller factories, but also other camps that were in close proximity of larger factory complexes. Many of these clues let us and other researchers think that the Chinese government's internment program was actually much bigger than we could ever document from the outside. Current research suggests that the scale of forced labour affecting Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities in Xinjiang is greater than we think due to the presence of two systems working alongside each other. The vocational internment camp network and the labour transfer programmes, which, through the years, have become more coercive. In his Jamestown reports, researcher Adrian Zenz estimates if we consider the two systems together, the total number of people at risk of forced labour is approximately two, two and a half millions, and this might be a conservative estimate. An important sector that can shed light on the complex situation of the Uyghurs and on coercive practices tainting the global supply chain is cotton production. China, in fact, is the largest cotton producer in the world. Over 80% of Chinese cotton is produced in the Xinjiang region. The cotton produced with raw materials and by labourers from the region is largely used to produce the clothes we wear every day. In fact, 
It fuels global supply chains involving well-known fast fashion brands, sportswear giants, and luxury groups. Despite mechanization of production, cotton picking in Xinjiang continues to rely on manual labor. In 2019, about 70% of the region's cotton was hand-picked, especially Pima cotton, a high-quality cotton grown predominantly in the Uyghur regions of southern Xinjiang. According to the 2021 study Laundering Cotton, led by scholar Laura Murphy, coercive labour within the cotton industry in the Uyghur region is likely to have expanded significantly in the last years. Large-scale cotton producers in the region have in fact begun engaging more Uyghur workers who are absorbed through state-sponsored labour programmes. From the fields to the factories, Xinjiang cotton is at high risk of being tainted by forced labour. This brings us straight to big names that are complicit in the exploitation of the Uyghur workforce, this time in the luxury sector. The French luxury group Kering, which includes brands such as Gucci, Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, Bottega Veneta, Alexander McQueen and Brioni in the Sustainable Development chapter of its 2019 annual report claimed they developed a business case to transition from conventional to organic cotton harvesting. The report claimed that they made that transition in two cotton fields right in the Xinjiang region. When French newspaper Liberation contacted Kering to inquire about the fields, Kering replied it was only an ecological research project. But when asked about the sustainability of the working condition in those fields, Kering could not give any information nor reassurance. Liberation even mentioned that the Better Cotton Initiative, the biggest NGO working to increase sustainability in the cotton sector, decided to stop working in Xinjiang. When asked why, they replied that the environment became unsustainable. The truth is that the brands that are involved in this slavery scheme, directly or indirectly, strengthen their economic power and market value thanks to profits from the forced labour. Many of these brands have claimed to be completely unaware of exploitative practices, while others deny the evidence, claiming that they conduct inspections that, as we later discovered, cannot actually be done in that region. Made in Slavery is a podcast in four episodes written by Eleonora Mongelli. The English and updated version was created in partnership with FIDU, Italian Federation for Human Rights and IRI, International Republican Institute and Solent University. Editing and mixing by Guido Andriani. Original music by Vincenzo Vitulli and voiceover by Katie Leeming. If you have any questions or comments, you can write to us at madeinslavery at gmx.com. Oh,